Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by my abuela, Claudia, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's resident dramaturg and artistic associate. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. And much like Olga Meredith, who played the part, I am too young to be called that, although I probably will age into it. As she did. And unfortunately, I think this uh, this heat wave may get the best of all of us. Unfortunately, we are all Abuela Claudia this weekend. <laughs> I think we've all been feeling that. But uh, before we get to that, um, we're so pleased to be coming to you uh, with the uh, sponsorship of Community Health Center, who are amazing and great, and we're so thankful for everything they're doing. Um, but before we get to the actual show, Annika, why don't you remind us what clue we got for the show we'll be putting in the spotlight this episode? Well, I I think we gave it away with Abuela Claudia, but... Whatever, it's not really like a, a mystery. Um, my clue was that this show um, was successful off-Broadway and they approached a famous actor to do the ads, the voiceover for the television ads when it was transferring to Broadway. And this actor was such a fan of the show that he agreed to do the voiceover for the ads, but instead of being paid, he just wanted Broadway house seats. And that actor was Jimmy Smith's. That show was In the Heights which started off-Broadway and transferred to Broadway. And, of course, Jimmy Smith was not finished with the show because then he starred in the recent awesome movie adaptation. So, yay, Jimmy Smith. You are very handsome and also seem awesome. And yay in the heights. Of course, with music and lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda, a book by Chiara Alegria Hudes, and conceived, of course, by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And that, of course, will bring us to the speed test. Where I do my best to summarize the plot of In the Heights in less than a minute. Annika, do you have a minute on the clock? Uh, yes, I do. Let's hope that I don't just summarize the plot of the movie because I famously will remember plots of movies better than I do the actual show. But I think I'm okay, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, some differences there, although also the movie, to be fair, came out like a month ago, so it is probably like fresher it. in your mind. Um, all right, are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be. All right, Carla, Daniela, third one who apparently is in the movie and not in the show, which was very upsetting to us in the past five minutes as we tried to find her name, and... Go. Okay, we are in the Heights, Washington Heights to be specific. Uh, Usnavi owns uh, a bodega and uh, he introduces us to all his friends, which include uh, Benny, who uh, works uh, for Vanessa. No, Vanessa's the one he has a crush on. See, I'm going to... Uh, he works for Nina, sorry. So Benny works for Nina's dad at the uh, taxi car service. Uh, Nina's gone off to college. She actually flunked out, but she's afraid to talk about that with everyone. So that's kind of her big secret. She ends up going back to Stanford at the end. Usnavi is in love with Vanessa, uh, who is like too hot for him, uh, but he's had a thing for her for a long time. And she wants to move downtown and have like a better life. And uh, then you have uh, the uh, hair salon, uh, Carla, and as we just talked about, um, um, who, uh, they're gonna. They're basically the rents being raised, so they're gonna have to move out of the neighborhood. And Abuela Claudia, who is basically like the mom of the block, and there's a lottery ticket that someone wins, and it's all kind of about that and the life in the neighborhood. 
Okay. You got the, the you got the start of it pretty good. It was not good. Okay. Well, there's a lot that happens in this show. And like all of these characters have a want and a motivation, right? So I did not I, I feel like that I was what? Be kind to yourselves. But yes, so you got the gist of it. There's Usnavi wants to go back to the Dominican Republic, uh, where he is from. Um, Vanessa wants to move downtown. Are either of these plots feel like they are totally full of explanation for why that is? Um, Nina has this issue with the college, which we'll talk about. And the entire neighborhood is kind of fighting against gentrification, which is creeping onwards and trying to, to balance their lives there with um, impending gentrification, basically, or higher rents and people who are not um, Latino moving in. So, Which has only gotten worse in the 13 years since the show premiered on Broadway. Um, cool. But Okay, so with that, that'll bring us to Why God Why. Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the big idea. What's the idea that's driving the narrative and why do the authors want to tell this story? So for me, I think this one is pretty uh, easy, I, I think, in that In the Heights is centrally a story about home and community. It's about um, where you feel like you belong and the people you belong with and where that is and uh, and how do you stay connected to home if you're not geographically uh, at home and, uh, and what that really, the intersection of all of those things for all of these people and uh, how the Heights is their home, uh, even though in the case of Wisnavi, uh, Puerto Rico's his home, but uh, he's not there and he wants to go back there. And, uh, and, but centrally he comes to find that really the Heights is his home and he wants to stay, spoiler alert. Um, so, uh, but Annika, what would you, what would you say is the driving, driving idea behind In the Heights? Yeah, I mean, I think you really hit it. This is definitely a show that's about community um, and celebrating the people around you and uh, what makes that community and not kind of always dreaming of somewhere bigger and better. Although I think it's a little bit, it's a little bit fuzzy. I mean, I, as you know, I always like to go to the protagonist and look at his journey, his or her journey. And in this one, um, it it definitely feels like it's Usnavi now, although that was different, I think, in the early origins of the show. And for Usnavi, it feels like he wants to go back to the Dominican Republic so much. Um, because I think he's, it's sort of like ultimately kind of, it, I guess there's a theme in the show about being a dreamer versus being a realist and sort of the, what you think is going to be behind another door versus what is actually in your own front yard. And so for Usnavi, his journey is to really accept that he has everything he needs in this place that he is right now, um, rather than constantly putting his hopes and dreams in a place that's far away. Um, is that consistent throughout all these characters? Mm, I wouldn't say so necessarily, but yeah, I, th I think that's kind of the the overall gist of it. It's it is kind of similar to, um, you know, there are other famous shows about communities where there's a sense of something beautiful that has been lost. Um, so, I think it has a little bit of that in its DNA as well. Well, it's interesting too because as you're talking about his journey, I think there's also obviously. Lin Manuel Miranda went on to create Hamilton, which ultimately makes the point at the end that it's about who lives, who dies, tells your story. And in some ways, 
uh, this show absolutely shares that idea and theme with the end that he is the the teller of the story of Washington Heights. And uh, so there is that that kind of thread throughout it, too, I, I suppose. But yeah, yes. that's a really good point. And also very Sondheimian. Sondheim has a lot of stuff about who's going to um, who's going to tell the story, who's going to survive to to be the person who passes this along. So very connected to musical theater history. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of In the Heights? We can never go back to before. Well, this is an interesting one to talk about because obviously in this section, often I'm talking about previous history adaptations of literature from the 1800s and et cetera, et cetera. And this one is an original musical. It's truly an original musical. Um, it did not exist in any form before it, it sprung from the brain of uh, Kiara Hudis and, and Lynn Miranda. So, well, specifically from Lynn Miranda and then Kiara was brought in to, to write it with him. So basically, I think you can't really talk about this without talking about Lynn um, because he's such a vital force in musical theater and this was really his introduction to Broadway um, and Broadway's introduction to him. So. I'm just going to talk about his life a little bit um, to get to this point. So what's interesting is that uh, in many ways, this is a deeply, deeply personal show for Lin-Manuel Miranda, but in many ways, it's also a web of lies. And by that, I mean um, a lot of what is depicted in the show is not really what Lin's actual experience was. He did grow up in Manhattan. He grew up in the, the north of Manhattan in the Upper West Side, where I sit right now as I record, it, record this. Um, but he did not grow up in Washington Heights. He grew up in a neighborhood called Inwood, which is the very tip of Manhattan. Um, very similar in terms of multi-community neighborhood, um, but but not the, not quite the same as Washington Heights, which is a little bit more iconic um, and a little bit better known. And as Lynn himself admits, it just kind of sounded better when it was sung. So he decided to set the show in Washington Heights instead of um, in Inwood where his experience was, but also he wasn't really like a neighborhood kid in the way that is depicted in the show. Um, obviously when this show premiered on Broadway, he played Usnavi. Um, so this show is always associated with his own experience um, with this community of people who are kind of like hanging out on the streets together, growing up together, etc. And Lynn was a little bit different. He, Lynn is the child of two people who were born in Puerto Rico. So he's the first generation American in his family. Um, and his father was very involved in the Latino community, especially his mother also. Um, so Lynn grew up surrounded by all of these different uh, Latino groups up in Inwood, um, very involved in the politics, in Latino representation. Uh, this was all around him at the time, but he also kind of from an early age was was pretty um, special. And he went to Hunter, which is an elite public school on the east side. He didn't go to neighborhood schools. He was basically kind of going from his home to school. He was, uh, as he said, he kind of saw the neighborhood kids who were hanging out with each other, but he like saw them hanging out on the street when he was like taking out the recycling when, on Fridays. So he really wasn't one of those kids. He was very nerdy, which is uh, still true to this day. He's so delightfully nerdy. He'd like traveled around with his little like Nintendo backpack for many years. Um, so in some ways, this isn't his experience. It's kind of an experience that he observed growing up. 
um, but has changed some of the details. He is from Puerto Rico. Usnavi is from the Dominican Republic. They're not kind of the same origin. Um, and his parents were very involved. Usnavi has no parents. Uh, he's an orphan. So, so there's a lot of things that were um, changed. However, one thing that was very true was that uh, Lynn spent his summers in Puerto Rico. Uh, he had some. He grew up part of the time outside of the, the city, which I think Usnavi has that same sort of like childhood memory of having grown up in the Dominican Republic. Um, that is where Lynn Miranda learned to speak Spanish in Puerto Rico. Um, and when he was back in New York, his father's former nanny, uh, Emunda Claudia, lived with the family in Inwood. And she loved to gamble, so she would take Lynn to the local bodega to pull the lever on the slot machines that was like hidden away in the bodega because it was illegal. Um, so that character kind of became, that person became Abuela Claudia in the show. And he also, from an early age, really, really, really loved music. Um, his parents loved music. They played all kinds of music. So from a very early age, this musical bug really bit him. Um, he loved especially Disney, and he credits Under the Sea from The Little Mermaid uh, for inspiring him to become a songwriter because he was so obsessed with it. He used to dance around in his living room. Um, something that I will say also he documented in many videos, which are largely online. You can see like little kid Lynn just like dancing to all sorts of stuff. It's delightful. Um, and he also loved Rent. He loved Broadway pretty much as soon as he was experienced. He was able to experience it, but he didn't get to go a great deal because his, fa his family couldn't afford to. But he just would wear out these albums. He credits Rent with teaching him that uh, shows could be dark, that musicals could take on uh, dark subject matters. So from the get-go, he was just one of those voracious musical fans, just consuming it. And you see that in all of his work. He really is a just a one-man encyclopedia of all of the kind of musicals that came before. But he also was really exposed to hip-hop and rap, which was mostly due to his sister, who um, exposed him to these musical forms, played them for him, his, his older sister, who knew this stuff in the ways that older siblings do. So that was also a world that he was really embedded in, just deeply loved and consumed. And obviously, both of these things are going to come to affect his work um, a lot. He is able to speak in the vernacular of both musical theater and rap and hip hop really fluidly. It's, he's, not, he's not borrowing the clothing of other one. He really is truly like a creature of both of these musical styles, in addition to many others. So um, eventually he goes to Wesleyan College, which is in Connecticut, not too far from the good speed. And while he was there, he lived in a Latino programming house. And he saw a lot of his fellow students and people he knew from home having trouble straddling the worlds of white people and Latino culture, um, and specifically trying to succeed in this white world while also trying to be um, true to their origins and, and represent that. And it was a very specific struggle. And he wanted to write a show about specifically that. So he started to write about this character, Nina, who was split between these two worlds. And from there, I'm gonna hand it over to Michael Fling to talk about the show that would become In the Heights. Lights up, old Washington Heights, if it's the break of day, I'll wake up and I got this little punk I gotta chase away. What if the five cats were just entirely us doing oh, <laughs> You must take DA train. I am Usnavi. And that brings us to putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. 
the segment where we talk about how the show is literally put together. So as Annika alluded to, this began at Wesleyan uh, with Lin-Manuel Miranda in the late 90s, 1999 to be specific. Um, and it really only starts out as a 20 minute reading presentation uh, that then it morphs into a production that Lynn uh, directs. And the story at that point is quite different from where the story lands ultimately. Um, at this point, it's basically about Benny being in love with Nina, who is back in the neighborhood for the summer from Yale. Uh, and then Lincoln, Nina's brother, who disapproves of their relationship and is who is actually gay and secretly in love with Benny. Plot twist. Um, a, something I had truly no idea about until I did this research, and I should credit. Um, there's a book that came out uh, timed with the movie's release called um, Finding Home that uh, tells the entire story of the creation process of both the musical and the movie, and there are tons of fantastic stories in it if you want to know more. Uh, but uh, uh, but yeah, so at that point, it was, it was mainly about that love story, and Usnavi was kind of a peripheral character who had this crush and pined after Vanessa, but they just kind of went to clubs with him, like very secondary to this, um, this original plot. So then flash forward to the drama bookshop, which had a basement theater space that was occupied by a resident company called Backhouse Productions, which was a young troop of friends featuring Tommy Kale, who wanted to produce new and exciting work. So they remembered In the Heights from their Wesleyan days and announced a production on their website, which actually made Lynn very upset because he knew nothing about it. And so he went and met with them. And surprisingly, he and Tommy had a lot of creative chemistry and started developing the show together. So they slowly start to assemble a cast. Um, notably, some of the earliest players in this are Chris Jackson, Janet Call, and Doreen Montalvo. Uh, uh, and then their creative team, uh, which include Bill Sherman and Alex Lackmore, uh, the two musical gurus that um, help make the show what it is. There's an amazing story about Pacinzi uh, Fay that is like insane um, that I read in the book. Uh, but basically that like half of it, it was like improv on the spot between um, uh, Alex Lackmore and Lynn, which is amazing. Uh, geniuses. So, uh, so as they're developing and getting on with things, word starts to spread that they might have something special on their hands. And the producers, Jill Furman and Kevin McCollum hear this word. And eventually Kevin brings in his partner, Jeffrey Seller, uh, and they start to shepherd the show's development. Uh, McCollum suggested to Lynn um, that he might need a collaborator to help him write the show, which kind of creates an existential crisis within Lynn. And he mix, misunderstands the comment and thinks that the producer of Rent, who he has idolized for years, is telling him he's not a good composer. And it kind of trips him up in his process uh, until he realizes that actually that's not what he meant. And maybe he just needs another collaborator. So he says, yeah, I'd, I'd love to have a book writer. I'd love to have someone help shape the story. So that's when Kiara Alegria Hudes comes into the picture and she and Lynn meet at a diner and immediately connect. Um, she was nervous to write a musical. It's not really something that she had done up to that point, um, but she really connected with the spirit of the show and the world Lynn had started to put on paper. And I don't want to say reluctantly, but nervously kind of said like, yes, she had a lot of things going on, bills to pay, whatnot, whatnot. Um, but they bring her on board 
And all of this leads to a developmental workshop at the O'Neill Theater Center in Waterford, where I happen to go to Target, shout out to Target. And there they accomplish a ton of work, uh, tons of songs, tons of new dialogue scenes and bits that are added to the show. Um, and audiences go absolutely wild for it. Uh, it, even to the point that they add an additional presentation, uh, which I guess is unheard of for them. Um, but maybe the most consequential part of this development step was the difficult conversation said to have happened at a picnic table at the O'Neill, where the producers met with the team who had at that point nicknamed themselves Voltron after the cartoon show that um, is about the five space explorers. Uh, and throughout this book, like, then continue to refer to themselves as Voltron. It's very weird, but like, whatever, go off, be friends. Um, so, but they have a very difficult conversation um, that the producers are like, yeah, we get that audiences are loving it, but we think you've taken one step forward and two steps back. Um, and we really need to kind of focus the story and actually get this to work because this is not going to work. Um, and after that conversation is when they decide to cut the character of Lincoln um, which frees up a ton of real estate in the story um, and allows them to look deeper at the dreams and the struggles of the entire community, notably increasing the size of the size of the role of the salon ladies who were initially just comic subplot. And then it allows Usnavi's story to take more of a central role. So they continue to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And this takes the show to 37 Arts, which at the time was a brand new theater complex in far west Midtown um, that was to be a dedicated off-Broadway space for um, a full production of the show. So this is when Andy Blank Bueller, as choreographer, joins the creative team, and they start to really put the show on its feet. And what I think is really important to understand about the time at 37 Arts and just the special nature of this show's development in general is there's kind of a it now seems trite that we talk about like theater like shows and people are like family and yada 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 but there really is a quite familial um atmosphere among people who have been a part of the development of in the heights i think it has a lot to do with the show's I think it's a, a lot about how the show is giving voice to an identity and culture that hasn't been authentically represented on Broadway before. Um, and the fact that they are all, for the most part, all of these creatives and a lot of the cast are like 20 somethings and have literally gone through this like seven year development process together and have literally grown up around each other. I mean, there's even a story like uh, Hugh, Hugh is water like breaks right after they freeze the show for their first preview at 37 arts like she goes to like have a baby i mean there's like literal like familial things around the show and one of the things about 37 arts is that because it's so far west in midtown and that area was not as developed at the time they really kind of like camped out there during the day and there were, ton there were tons of stories of them hanging out on breaks hanging out in between shows and having potlucks and this very this very warm, loving, positive environment that really fosters a special connection between all of these people. So they open at 37 Arts and get pretty good reviews. Um, lots of, I mean, there are some, you know, some doubters, some detractors, um, but by and large, it's really this, you know, make or break moment for them. And the producers make the risky decision to take the show to Broadway. Um, 
at which point they continue to refine the show and make it even tighter. There are some changes to 96,000 that I think go in at that point that are partially inspired by um, Thriller and some changes in Act 2 that really tighten the show and make it a little little stronger. Um, and then it opens on Broadway to pretty favorable notices and um, has quite a successful successful run, particularly for the green, green, green creative team that got it there. And it opens in a pretty stacked season, um, as, you know, happens sometimes. I mean, the South Pacific revival, the Gypsy revival, starting Paddle the Pone. I mean, two of the all-time great revivals, uh, certainly. I, it doesn't win a ton of Tonys, but I think only because of the competition that it was up against. Yeah, what a year. I mean, there are those years in the Tonys that's just like a, a bounty. Um, but yeah, it was nominated for 13 uh, Tony Awards, but it only won four. However, one of them was Best Musical and uh, Best Original Score for Lynn, um, who rapped his speech, which was delightful. Um, but it was really, it was well received. I mean, certainly everybody was aware that a bright new talent was on the horizon. And after that, it kind of did... It, it had an interesting uh, life after that. It has it toured. It's had a, a life internationally, um, not surprisingly in many places that you would expect, which is kind of the part of the world that speaks Spanish specifically, um, where it feels like there's a lot of overlap, but also in the usual places you would see um, a Broadway show that was successful going, the UK, um, Australia, interestingly, Tokyo, but um, yeah. It did pretty well. And then, of course, this past year, we got the movie, which was directed by John Chu. I think it's great. I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it is such a warm, delightful piece of musical entertainment. I can't say enough how much I enjoyed it. Do I have notes? Sure, but I'm a bitch. When do we never... I mean... <laughs> when do we not have notes? We have notes. We could just call this podcast. We have notes. We have honestly, actually, that's not. That's pretty funny. Like we could just do a spinoff podcast called "We Have Notes" with Michael Flag and Annika Chapin. That is funny. Okay. Anyway, no. I mean, but the movie is delightful. Um, and uh, absolutely, if you can stream it on HBO Max when you're listening to this, I highly encourage you to do so with the entire family. We'll tell everyone to watch it. It is such a such a wonderful, wonderful celebration of New York and musicals and just everything. Agreed. Cosign. And I mean, because really the show did not, I feel like it has taken off again. It has taken off subsequent to Hamilton because everyone wants to get in on the Hamilton craze. But really, like, we should call it what it is, which is that people weren't producing in the Heights before Hamilton became the sensation that it was like it, it I, I don't feel like it has uh to quote the Lion King has claimed its rightful place as a part of the repertoire um for whatever the repertoire look at me sounding so pretentious um but I I feel like it has been largely overlooked um for how much people loved it when it initially um premiered and the success that it was it kind of it, it has not had the triumphant it's not had its triumphant moment in the spotlight post it winning the Tony. Um, so until Hamilton has become Hamilton. And then I think people have started to look back and say it was a great show that wasn't as successful as it probably could have been. 
Um, and certainly that is the argument behind making it a huge blockbuster movie. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think we'll get into some of these points. I, I feel like people both really thought it was good, but also it felt like it was more an announcement of a major new talent, I think, than, than people really felt like the show itself was brilliant. Um, which I think is due to some, some different things, but, but yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's undergoing a sort of reimagining now, um, which I think is great. I mean, people should know of the show and, and embrace it. It's really joyous and lovely and moving and fun. So Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside Breathe. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right, so let's dive into the song Breathe. This is a very early song in the show, and it is the character of Nina, who I would say is not our main protagonist, but is certainly one of the main people that we're following here. She has come back from college. Her parents are very excited. We know that she's going to Stanford and we know that she's been a little bit evasive about uh, talking about it. So something is going on. We don't quite know what. And this is the song that we get with her um, talking about what is happening. So it's really a beautiful song. And uh, this is the original cast recording. So we have Mandy Gonzalez singing it. So let's dive right in. So right off the bat, it's something different. Um, it's starting out as something diegetic that Nina is hearing in the neighborhood. It's not necessarily a traditional musical song in which someone is just kind of bursting into song. Um, and that's a normal part of the world we're given, but not a normal part of our actual world. This is overtly supposed to be something that she's hearing in the neighborhood as she's walking down the street. And it's an old bolero, which is a sort of Cuban folk song, an old song form. Um, so she references later in the song that she's listening to these old ones coming from the, the radio. And so this is, this is that, it's that kind of a style. Um, and the show is, deals a lot with nostalgia and the dream of something far away. So it's kind of perfect that Lynn is using this old Cuban song form to illustrate Nina's conundrum, um, which is just a great example of what you can do using uh, songs in a musical that are not necessarily the style of contemporary musical theater. And of course we know that Lynn is a genius of that. He uses all sorts of different styles to, to get his purpose across. He's very, very good at using meaning um, from all of these places. So this is one of them. And right off the bat, we also get the simple descending solo guitar, um, which is both true to that style, but it also kind of keeps dropping down which really nicely foreshadows that dread that Nina is feeling in the song. You kind of get that sense that this is just, her stomach is just sinking, sinking, sinking as she's gonna have to confront what she knows is real, which is that she's basically dropped out of Stanford and hasn't told this community who has such high hopes for her. Um, and we're starting out with Spanish lyrics, which are keep walking the path of your life, breathe, and if you lose your way, God bless you. Um, so Lynn is tweaking the normal bolero form because usually boleros are love songs. So he wants it obviously to speak a little bit more towards Nina's situation, which is also something that's going to happen a lot throughout the song. It's both 
a song that she's listening to, people in the neighborhood, and it's speaking directly to her personal uh, mental state at the same time. Um, and of course, we're setting up another thing. I know every, there's so much to talk about at the beginning of these songs, which is that um, that this is a beautiful song. It's so comforting and nice and lovely, and it's nothing but a positive mention, um, a positive message. Keep walking the path of your life. Just breathe. And if you lose your way, God bless you. Everything's fine. There's nothing negative or pressure filled about that. And the fact that there is no overt pressure placed on it is making Nina feel 10 times worse because sometimes that's true that when people are really kind and really just want the best for you and just have great hopes in you, you feel so, so much worse when you feel like you failed them. So lots being set off right off the bat and she hasn't even started singing yet, but she's about to hear, let's go. This is my street. I smile at the faces I've known all my life. They regard me with pride and everyone's sweet. They say you're going places. So how can I say that while I was away, I had so much to hide? All right, so Nina starts in a really interesting way. She's narrating for us what is happening for her. This is my street. These are the people, you know, it's very uh, kind of presentational in a way. It's unusual in that way. This is an interior moment. She doesn't have to be explaining to us who these people are. And she's not really overtly explaining it to us. She's not being our narrator. But I think this signals two things. First, that she's such a mess of feelings right now that she's a little bit disconnected from herself. So she's talking like this partially because she's kind of reminding herself what's happening. Um, sometimes you do that when you sort of have to comfort yourself, you sort of speak to yourself. Um, and two, that she's kind of the A plus student who always defaults to being polite. And I think that kind of sense of like, let me explain for you what this is, is a little bit that, you know, she's a mess of a person, but she, she's not a person who is very comfortable wallowing in her emotions. Um, so she's kind of just explaining what, what is around here. She's being a tour guide um, because that's, a, that's an easy thing for her to grab onto. And we got this beautiful, beautiful swirling rhythm, like a waltz, I think it is a waltz. And uh, these lines all swirl around too. This, they just keep kind of swinging into the next one. And you get the sense here that she's a little bit spiraling. She's thought about this a lot. These are circular thoughts. It's not like these are all new. Um, and she's very good at tormenting herself because usually when you're thinking like this and you're just kind of pulling one after another and it's just very comforting to you to kind of go through these things, usually that often can be something that you're doing. You're just, just punishing yourself. It's the greatest hits. Um, and then of course we jump into this big note, uh, this higher note for unexpected melancholy uh, note here for Hyde, which is kind of the first indication in the song that something is amiss. Hey guys, it's me, the biggest disappointment you know. The kid couldn't hack it, she's back and she's walking real slow. Welcome home, just breathe. So this is interesting. I like this line a lot and it's fascinating to me. Hey guys, it's me, the biggest disappointment you know. Um, 
it's not a very well scanned lyric. Uh, the biggest disappointment you know doesn't is awkward. Um, something like the biggest attraction you know is would would scan. Obviously, that doesn't make any sense in the context of the song, but. Uh, Lynn Miranda is usually a brilliant, brilliant lyricist who is very, very capable of putting exactly the right syllable, exactly the right lines. Um, so it's rare that he scans a lyric badly. And I think this is on purpose here. I think that the same way that Shakespeare breaks an iambic pentameter to show you, you have to pay special attention to what that character is saying, um, that they've, there's a reason that that rhythm has been broken. I think Lynn is scanning this lyric badly to show you how ragged this thought is for Nina. It's not smooth, it's not right, it's harsh and it's awkward and that is how she feels. Thinking to herself, the biggest disappointment you know. It's so bitter and you can just hear in that line how bitter and, and rough it is for her to think that. And then of course she's using just breathe, the, long, the line from the song for herself to remind herself to breathe, which is so great. Days when this city was mine, I remember the praise I te adoro, te quiero. The neighborhood waved and said, Nina, be brave and you're gonna be fine. And maybe it's me, but it all seems like lifetimes ago. So, what do I say to these faces that I used to know? Hey, I'm home. It does a big chunk, but oh, so good. Um, again, this is a show that deals a lot with nostalgia, with a different past or a different place. And here we're hearing that these boleros she's listening to, songs from the past, are parts of the past, as we said, but also she's imagining her youth with this community, her own growing up. Um, and this is so cool because all these voices are weaving in with the song. The line is blurring between what she's hearing on the radio, what she's imagining from her youth. Um, and although everyone and everything she's remembering is nothing but positive, it's so sweet, all of these people, um, we can also feel how present they are. They're right there. They're always right there. They're kind of under her music. She's feeling the weight of their kindness and of their expectation. Um, and the music is really, really illustrating that for us. It's so beautiful. These harmonies, these gorgeous harmonies, this kind of disembodied group that is this ensemble supporting her in many ways, but also you can't get away from it. It's just always right there. And so there's, they're really capturing here that double reality of positive, beautiful community support and also how much that is killing her right now. It is just a crushing pressure, even though that's not intention, intentional on the part of these people. 
Um, and then we get this beautiful moment where she's translating the lines of what they're saying, which she hasn't really overtly done before. And it's all these things about she's our star. We we trust her. They're not, we're not worried about you. Um, but of course, all of these lines are making it much worse. And we can feel each one just adding the pressure. And just a, a note here that that Lynn is doing a, a multilingual rhyming here. Estrella, they are. Taya, I am. I mean, he's really just showing off a little bit with how brilliant he has he is at these rhymes. And then, of course, by the end, we're we can feel this pressure building for her after this section, which of course it would because it's all of these beautiful things that are oh, we're not worried about you. You're great. You're all our star. And then she's filling in the stuff about I'm the one who made it out. I'm the one who they all look to, which nobody is actually really saying, but that's what she feels. She's the one, she's the one, she's the chosen one to do this and she messed up. So we can get the sense in the music and in just her mindset in these lyrics of where this is gonna go and, sh and she's gonna break wide open right now and here it is. When I was a child, I stayed wide awake, climbed to the highest place on every fire escape, restless to climb. I got every And now, so we we can really feel that she's just she's just breaking through um, the kind of spiraling that she's been doing, which has been kind of subdued, has broken into this sort of panicked self punishment frenzy. Which I don't know, I I know this feeling very well when you just kind of go down this jag of like, oh my god, this is terrible, um, and we lose that melodic bolero. And it becomes a different kind of song. Jagged percussion, energy. It sounds like the, the club music. It's just a very different feeling than the rest of the song. The ensemble pretty much goes away. We're not feeling that kind of omnipresent like support because now she's basically musically lashing out um, at herself, maybe at them a little bit. Um, but uh, just, just punishing herself. I mean... It also mirrors what she felt when she was that girl who was the kind of ambitious where she had a ladder to climb. You know, she knew the next thing to do. She got all the scholarships. She saved all the money. She had a purpose and she was going to do it. And we can feel that in that music. But also um, now she's just kind of beating herself up for, for what she was doing for the person she's both let down and the person who was in that kind of energy where you have that sense of what comes next. And now she really honestly does not know. So at the end of this, she's just left by herself with the bridge. And we've got that kind of beautiful, after this frenzy melody, these two notes kind of dropping down that, that don't quite uh, end. It's just leaving it there for now. We don't, we're waiting for her to pick it up again. Straighten the spine. Smile for the neighbors, everything's fine, everything's cool. The standard reply, lots of tests, lots of papers. Smile, wave goodbye, and pray to the sky. Oh God, what will my parents say?
So now we have the end and, and she's gone through that kind of frenzy and that energy of, of beating herself up and remembering this younger person that had this drive. She's come back to a more subdued place and now she's focusing more on logistics, what she actually has to do to talk to her neighbors, what she, the story she's kind of concocted to tell them. And she's focused on what the real challenge is going to be, which is talking to her parents, who of course are the ones she's most worried about letting down, the ones who made the biggest sacrifices for her. Um, and then we get this really lovely final moment where uh, Abuela Claudia calls her in. Um, and that feels a little bit different from the other community members who are giving her nonstop support. I think this is something that shows what Abuela Claudia is for all of these people, which is that she truly is someone who is comforting. Um, she can kind of break through whatever the issue is that you're having and just kind of be a, a reset for you. So she's not in the same category as all of these other community members who are telling her she's a star and she can do whatever and she'll be fine. Um, but Abuela is, is kind of resetting her a little bit. And then of course we have this really beautiful last line with Jiz Nina using the line from the song, but this time reminding herself truly in that moment where she's about to go um, see Abuela Claudia and also talk to her parents, um, she's gonna have to actually kind of do this thing. She needs to breathe. So it's a really lovely transition from song back to scene. And at the end of this song, we know a lot more about Nina. Um, we both know some logistical stuff, but we also know how much Nina is a little bit lost right now, that she is someone who is used to succeeding and she is used to carrying the weight of expectation from the people around her um, with ease. And now she is someone who has probably never had the space before to have to figure out when she doesn't know what the next step is and she doesn't know whether she can actually do something. Um, she doesn't know what to do and she's going to have to figure it out. And of course, we're going to see what she does, but it's a really great uh, setup song for Nina and I want song sort of um, for her showing what's going on with her. And it's a really lovely illustration of what this neighborhood can be for people within it, you know, um, positive, supportive, wonderful, but also everybody is there watching what you're doing. And for those who are trying to get out of it, it can be it can be kind of crushing, even if it's a good thing. So all of this in one song, it's very beautifully done. And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues this show faces, both internal and external. So as we've discussed with many other shows that we've profiled on the program, uh, there is a remarkable kind of, there are like two tones that are very much at play in, in the Heights. You have this very realistic, uh, let's give you an authentic sound and uh, presentation of what it is to live uh, in Washington Heights. And then you also have this like very heightened reality that a lot of places, um, a lot of uh, plots and characters and moments very much trade in. And there is this duality that exists within the show. I don't have a problem necessarily with those things coexisting. I think it, it does that quite well, but I do think it leads to some plots that aren't fully developed, some moments that I think are 
remarkably untruthful for how truthful other things in the show are. I would say specifically, I think some of the um, reveal of the lottery ticket feels very um, not well done or couldn't, it isn't as executed as well as it maybe could have been. I think the movie improves on that a little bit. Um, but uh, Annika, you're the one who first raised to me um, some of the inconsistencies in Nina's plotline and some of the struggles there. So, I, which I think is very much a part of this discussion. So I, or this topic, I guess I should say. So how do you think this duality of tone impacts in the Heights and, and some of the plot lines? Well, I, it's been something I've always kind of struggled with, with, with this show in particular. And I think you can kind of see it in some of the discussions about it. Um, you know, if you look at some of the early reviews, a sentimental is a word you'll hear a fair amount, sometimes a soap opera, something like that. There's this very much the sense that it's kind of um, not totally realistic, naturalistic in its uh, characters and in the way that they're portrayed. You know, it is sort of this glimpse of a neighborhood that it's not necessarily gritty, um, in its portrayal, um, which is fine, totally fine. It's it's a musical, it's kind of painting with a slightly broader brush. Um, it's full of joy, it's a celebration of community. This kind of tone with this kind of thing often exists. Um, however, I do feel like there's also an attempt made to portray some of the very real difficulties in the lives of the people in the neighborhood, and that just doesn't always work super well for me. The The problem I've had since the first day I ever saw this show was, um, you know, I think Nina is this character who um, is the kind of crux of the origin of why Lynn Miranda wanted to, to write this show. Um, a character who's trapped between these expectations um, for her. She, she wants to succeed. She wants to go and leave this neighborhood and leave the kind of limitations that are placed on people uh, like her from her socioeconomic background. Um, she's not a white person in America. She's she's determined to kind of fight her way past that. And obviously she's gotten into Stanford, which is a very good school. And when we first meet her, she's come back because she has had to work so many jobs to pay for her for her tuition, basically, that she couldn't do well in class, even though she's like all her life been a straight A student, super smart. Um, and so she basically has effectively dropped out. I mean, she's kind of taken a leave of absence, but she's it was an unsustainable situation that she had to kind of give up on. And then at the end of the show, when we have these kind of like, sort of like more sentimental endings like Usnavi and Vanessa who are a couple that kind of like don't ever seem like they're that connected to each other to be honest like they, they, you know they're getting together like there are these things that are kind of feel like they're wrapping up in a very sort of um like neat way Nina's ending is that she's getting on the plane to go back to Stanford after her father has sold his business to pay for her tuition and there's kind of like a I'm going to pull my boots up and I'm going to do it. Like if you guys fought that hard for it, I'm going to fight so hard for my dream. And I just, I just can remember being like, Oh, this is so strange. My feeling in the audience, because I, I know I'm supposed to be sort of happy for a lot of these characters. And Usnavi is making this decision to stay and to honor his community and to honor Abuela Claudia. And 
we're watching this character who's done nothing but fight as hard as she could her whole life to succeed um, go off to a situation which really does not seem tenable. Um, and I just remember thinking, like, I'm not, I'm not really happy about that choice because I just feel like she's setting herself up to fail again. Um, and I just wondered at the time, I was like, why didn't she just transfer to Columbia, at least where she could, you know, be at home, um, have the support of the community around her, not have to, to do maybe all of this stuff. Like, it feels like there were other solutions. Um, and I just... I don't have a problem with the idea of like, like I think it's a kind of interesting point to make, which is that like for a lot of people who are in that position, trapped between these two worlds who don't have the money, um, that is realistic. They're gonna have to work 14 jobs to, to pay the rent. They're gonna have to figure it out, you know? That's the thing, it's like you just have to figure it out. But I don't think this show necessarily sets us up to be in that level of realism for that, for that plot to end that way. You know, I would have, felt like it was more in keeping with the rest of it to, to have her say like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna succeed in the way I always wanted to, but I'm gonna do it on my own terms and I'm gonna like find a way to both embrace my community and, and these people who believe so much in what I can do and do it in a way that I can actually set myself up for success. Um, so I've kind of left with a bitter taste in my mouth from something like that. Um, at the same time as I'm kind of like, yay, Usnavi's gonna stay, you know? So so in some ways it's like, that's where I kind of feel like the show has a little bit of a, it's a little bit fighting itself. And I, I don't know if that's because, you know, I think Lynn Miranda is a little bit more um, situated in that kind of like musical theater joy world and Kiara Hudis is a little bit more situated in a realism world. Um, and so perhaps what we're seeing there is um, a slight, uh, a slight mixing of styles that has not totally gelled in some places. Um, although considering that was uh, Lynn's original intention for the story, perhaps that was just something he he felt very strongly about. Um, but yeah, so there are moments like that. I, I you know I, I'm not I never quite feel like I've I, I feel like both Vanessa and Usnavi's plots. I need like one degree more of what the plan is, you know, because he's just constantly talking about going back to the Dominican Republic, he's going to drink rum, he's, you know, he has this kind of idealized version of what that life is going to be. But I'm also like, what are you going to do there? You know, I, I don't, I'm not sure what the plan is. And for Vanessa, too, it's like she really wants to move out of the neighborhood. But how is she going to pay her rent when she's there? You know, I mean, the movie gave her a different plot, which is that she's a fashion designer, she wants to be able to kind of make her own clothing and I do feel like we're missing that piece of Vanessa a little bit I we know she has an alcoholic mother um that she's trying to escape but we also don't really know besides just getting out of this neighborhood what what her deal is you know she wants to get out of the neighborhood and then what you know it seems like all her friends are here she keeps coming back she's gonna date Usnavi who's a bodega owner on the corner so it's a little bit like I think the show there there are moments where I crave a little bit more realism for some of these characters that are a little broad and then a little bit less realism in one or two of these characters so so that's what i would say kind of for me prevents it from being like a total slam dunk because i just sometimes feel a little bit like wait i'm like you are speaking these two different languages of um dramatic text in this show and i don't always feel like they're de generally in service of the same goal
Yeah, I, I, I cert I hear that. I think there is, um, I, I, there, it raises a lot of interesting questions because I guess on some level they are all variations on, on the theme of home and community and how you relate to all that, right? Like they are united by a certain that, but they certainly don't go about it in the same, in the same way. Because even like I would say like the fact that the, um, the, um the salon is going to move to the Bronx. It's like, okay, that's just, okay, bye. Um, like, I'm very like sad by that. I'm like, well, wait, but, but they're like, I mean, they're all the heartbeat of the community. Like every one of them is bringing, is bringing that to it. So there is, but you're right. There is an odd dichotomy that's, that's at play. Um, there, there definitely is, which is a, a struggle in how you interpret the material. And I think, I think the, the movie, I think, with you know 12 years wisdom 10 year decade wisdom of of um the writers being able uh, growing up a little bit in their writing styles and things certainly improves on some of those things so i i'll be curious in now future productions of in the heights if some of those if if the movie informs how people do it on stage which we haven't really had a case of that in a minute i think of a movie that has done better or been more successful i don't know and it, it may not be it may go the way we we don't know we're speaking only three weeks after the movie came out something like that um at the time of recording by the time this episode drops it'll have been a little a minute but still we're not quite sure but it's an interesting thing to be thinking about and kind of keeping an eye on as the legacy of this show develops what what sticks, what, and, and what ends up becoming part of the, uh, I want to say culture text, but, um, really just the, uh, kind of definitive quote unquote in the Heights, uh, which is interesting. I, I feel like we haven't watched this happen in real time in a way, which is kind of why we wanted to do this episode was to, to be a little bit of a pinpoint of what, where the, what the feelings on the show were prior to or it, before the movie kind of takes over if it does and maybe it won't maybe it'll be uh maybe it will be a blip in the radar and it will i don't know maybe that's cynical of me but it it does in this weird also moment this is not necessarily this probably gets cut for time but in a weird moment that so much of what live theater is is changing so much of what going to the movies and how movies are made and what happens with them is changing in the Heights is straddling that line because it's been it's debuted simultaneously on HBO Max and in theaters. It had some box office numbers that weren't really as great as the studio anticipated them being, which is a disappointment. Um, and so, how people view the movie, I think, is we we won't know for a minute if if it really um, launches the show or or reinvigorates uh, attention on the show uh, even more so than Hamilton kind of did. Yes, and I think we should just mention, too, that it's unfortunately kind of been overtaken by uh, a question of representation and a bit of that issue, which has really kind of overshadowed the the early triumph of the movie um, in a way that's that's kind of sad because the movie, I think, deserves to be... I mean, yes, it deserves... I think that's justifiable criticism, but it also feels like, is it criticism of such a degree that the movie should be thrown away for that reason i don't think so probably but i think it'll be interesting to see whether that taints that movie um 
irreparably in the future or whether that's kind of something that is is a footnote to it i was gonna say my sense is that it's a little bit more of a footnote i i will share with personal experience that i i went to the show with friends who are hispanic and latinx and to watch the show with or not watch the show to watch the movie with them and see themselves represented on screen and how much joy that brought them and how much they felt seen and represented by the movie was really fulfilling as an as an audience member with them to to know that other people were feeling so seen and so represented was it brought another layer of joy to the movie for me that i i just allowed me to love it even even more so I, I will grant that I have a little bit of a skewed perspective in terms of that, um, in terms of that conversation. But I, I sense that it will end up being a little bit more of a footnote. But we will we will see with time. And that will bring us to our new segment. We go together. We go together. Where we talk about the family tree of these shows and what other shows we think might be a cousin to In the Heights. So. I'm, I'll start by saying I, I think we've already talked about it a little bit, but I think Fiddler on the Roof is probably the closest cousin to this show. Um, it certainly mirrors its opening number, and um, Snavi definitely has some overlap with Tevya in that kind of like showing you the world and the landscape type thing. But I also think generally In the Heights is kind of resolves as if Fiddler, like if they stayed in Anatevka, like they're going to stay in the Heights. Um, so it certainly has that difference, but I do think they are very similar to each other in structure and in how they are talking about family and community and, and what that means. Um, what are some other shows that you think, uh, are, I mean, first off, do you agree? And two, what are some shows that you, uh, that you think it is similar to? Cause I can certainly see others. Yeah, absolutely. I do agree. I think Fiddler is definitely the one that it owes the most to in terms of um, antecedents and very much that opening number. Um, and also that sense of like, both shows are very much located in a place and have that kind of sense that there's something about them that this time, this place, this story, these people, there's something charmed about it that by the end of the show, you really are feeling like this is never going to exist in quite the same way that it has in this moment over the show. And obviously with Fiddler, that's a little bit more overt because Anatevka will not exist really at all. And the community has been splintered apart. Um, but you get that same feeling within the Heights that it is a celebration of something that is going away. Um, in the Heights, it's a little bit more um, abstract gentrification, uh, but there certainly is that. The other show that I think probably is the closest is uh, Rent. I see a lot of Rent in in the heights um and and that makes sense because i feel like lynn miranda is a big jonathan larson fan obviously we can see a little bit of the disney dna too because we get a little bit of like the beauty and the beast opening number sort of situation like this is the town um but in terms of rent you have this new york story you have that same kind of feeling of nostalgia for a time and place that's not going to be the same by the end of the show um you have a group of people who all have their specific wants and needs and, and are interacting in this very specific way. Um, a real community that you're casting a light into you might not know. And also an interesting like overlap. I think actually there's a closer relationship between Usnavi as your sort of narrator, protagonist character, and Mark from Rent more so than there is between Usnavi and Tevia, who's not overtly as... Um, 
narrative, basically. Like both Usnavi and Mark are like, hello, I am your guide to this world. Let me show you around, basically. Um, Mark, because he's a filmmaker, so you have that. Usnavi, because he just like introduces himself and starts in. Um, so you've got that kind of like narrator character that's standing a little bit between the action, um, a little bit removed from it sometimes, a little bit uh, sometimes coming in and out in that in terms of engagement. So certainly Rent, but I think also um, I would say Guys and Dolls is in there too. That's interesting. Why yeah. Why Guys and Dolls? Because Guys and Dolls, I think, um, has a little bit more structure um, in terms of the sort of main plots and then also these kind of side characters that are full characters and actually kind of almost bigger characters than some of the main characters. And here I'm thinking of like the salon ladies and the gangsters, the gamblers, the nicely, nicely in Benny South Street, who are both kind of there for comedy and there for support, but also helping these plots along. I think there's that. And I think some of the big numbers actually owe a lot more to traditional musicals like Guys and Dolls, which has the Crapshooters Ballet and these like big numbers as, and which in the same way that In the Heights has the club and the blackout and you know rather than rent which doesn't quite have that same kind of like and now we're going to do a huge like dance number but i mean fiddler definitely does right yeah, I mean, yeah and i think i mean i think rent's a great point um because yeah there is definitely that overlap in like time and space and community and and all that but mm -hmm. it's, the guys and dolls point is interesting i mean because also guys and dolls too on some level is also a capture of a time and play it is yeah. trying to evoke a very specific time and place within New York. So it's just interesting because yeah. I think of them as so different, but really they're they're not that different. No, although, and Guys and Dolls, I think, is a good example of a show that is very much set in a time and place, but doesn't have that nostalgia woven into it in the same way that something like Fiddler does, where even before it's clear that Anna Tepka is going away, there is this sense of like, we have to hold on to something that is fragile. Whereas in Guys and Dolls, you don't really get the sense that like, you know, when you come back to this place a year later, it's going to be very different. It kind of feels like it's kind of the same and it's going to stay the same. And not, the characters are not afraid of something changing, really. Well, it's like the, the two versions of nostalgia, right? Yeah. Like this, the pre-mourning of, of a potential loss and then the hearkening back to a, a time that was simpler, happier, whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, and it's super interesting. Yeah, it's like the Bohemia is dead, you know, and... Um, Anna Tepka is gone. But I also kind of feel like there's a little bit of sort of uh, Wizard of Oz DNA in there too in that same way. You know, certainly in Usnavi constantly thinking of this other place he wants to be. Um, well, anytime that home is going to be a, a major yeah. theme, I think you're, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, I think there's a lot, it owes a lot to um, these other shows. And, and that's that's real for, I mean, Lynn speaks the language of so many shows and knows musical theater down to his bones so it feels right that he has little bits and snippets from different pieces in there well and they talked too about in the development they the, at the time that they were developing the show a revival of fiddler on the roof was on broadway and they all went and saw it multiple times like using it as a um as a kind of blueprint of sorts and then when joseph stein who wrote the book to fiddler as we talked about on that episode when he saw in the heights they all like thanked him for what he provided. He yeah. was like, oh, yeah, okay, you're welcome. Right. <laughs> Which is, like, really funny and to yeah. think about. Right. And also, we should say this, too, is that Fiddler on the Roof puts Jewish people which is not a majority population in America, not a population 
potentially people know about or their their culture and community on stage it is a show only about jewish people it is that is what it is um that is a major thing and obviously that is very true for in the heights with latinx people with this population of what we would consider a minority population in america you are spending time in their world it is about those people it is about that culture um that is a huge element of both and it's funny you bring that up because there is a an actual story in the the book that we used for um the history section um that uh Lynn's dad like called everyone that he knew and he was like we're going to make this the Latino fiddler on the roof like the Jews made fiddler on the roof success we have to show up for this as they did for fiddler which is again I don't know that there was conspiring about that between him and the creative team but it's a, an, an interesting and very very valuable valuable point yeah and that will bring us to our favorite things these are a few of my favorite things where we talk about some of our favorite things about In the Heights. So Annika, who is your favorite character in In the Heights? You know, this is one that, I, I kind of love the character of Abuela Claudia. I, I really feel like she's the, so much the heart of the show. It's such a presence that you feel. And, you know, I think the reason that the movie is in my mind because of, I really loved that movie as we've talked about, but the, the moment that really sticks with me that just is like a, a knife in my heart is at the end of the truly stunning number that is Passion de Fay, um, forgive my terrible pronunciation, there is a moment of such beauty um, with all of these dancers just coming into a line together. And then the end of it is just this old woman struggling up subway stairs. And there's something about her going up those stairs that is like just so heartbreaking to me and so beautiful and just kind of captures the entirety of like not only her personal struggle as a character but this all all people who have left their homes and come to this other place and are just kind of struggling every day to make it work and it just um it just is so beautiful to me and i also like such all the awards in the world to olga Meredith, who basically is the only person who's ever played that part because she played it i mean i think for the entirety of that show when she you know did it in the workshop and was too young to be playing that part and then they just couldn't find anyone who was a better choice she's so warm and wonderful and she you know now she's closer to the age that she should be in the movie and it's just she's great so i'm gonna say that although side note to sunny because i also really love sunny oh sunny's great uh, a, a, a fantastic answer um i i agree um and that moment with the stairs also too, just like going to heaven. I mean, like the, the symbolism of, it's just a stunning, stunning visualization. Um, that number generally, I thought was stunningly visually captured in the movie. But um, uh, I think, you know, I, I hate to always have like the most basic answer, but like Usnavi's great. I really like Usnavi. I think he's so charming and it may just be the Lin-Manuel Miranda of it all with the cast recording. And I, it may just be that, um, Sonny's a great answer too, but I think I have to answer Usnavi and also Anthony Ramos can, uh, Anthony Ramos is, is uh, uh, an attractive, strapping young lad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what? Corey Hawkins in the film um, is also a strapping young man. We get it. 
Uh, but no, I mean, honestly, I think I, I also love, I love this. I love um, the salon girls. I think they're. I know. I, I was going to pick them too. I just feel like I, now I feel bad that I left them out. No, but I mean, there's so, it's all to say like this, uh, there is a wonderful, colorful community that is in this show. What's your favorite song? And in the Heights. Well, I, I have the obvious one, which I think is probably also going to be yours. Wait, I don't me- know. I've actually, I'm surprised. I, I was surprised. I, I, once I had actually read the show and listened through like, and actually experienced it. Cause I didn't, I had not, I did not see the show live ever. So I, once I had read the show and listened to it, I actually had a different, I was like, Oh, I usually skip this track, but I love this song. Oh, interesting. Okay. Then I'll go for the one I was going to say. Um, I mean, the opening number of this show is one of the great opening numbers of all time clearly very influenced by tradition from Fiddler. It's just delightful. I mean, who can, who knows the show and can't like just start in on those opening lines? It's so joyous and just immediately wraps you up um, and, and achieves so much dramatically. It's just kind of a masterclass. It's fantastic opening number. Um, ex, uh, Extra credit also goes to Carnival del Barrio, which is a song that I love. Okay, so that is what I like. I normally would skip over it on the album, and then I got to it in the in the show, and I was like, "This number slaps." I'm all about it. I'm all about that number. Um, I was gonna say because I would be tempted. Yes, you're right. I would be tempted to say the opening number because it's great. I also, of course, love ninety six thousand. What a bop. But I think I w- I think I'm gonna answer Carnival. Like I think that's maybe the winner. Like I, it's a great, great song. It's so good. And then there's parts of it that just themselves get stuck in my head, like because there's a lot of like different musical. Inv- it's it's just great, and it's so full of joy, and I love it. I gotta say honorable mention too to the club sequence. Honorable mention. That's the phrase I was looking for. Um. Honorable mention to the club sequence, which is thoroughly fantastic musical theater storytelling, full of great, um, great sound, uh, great like melodies and things. I, I think it's uh, another sequence that I would have like skipped over on the on the album before I had read and uh, listened to the show. Yes, also honorable mention to No Me Diga, which is really fun and gets a lot of. I mean, Lynn Miranda is a brilliant, brilliant expository songwriter, like. He manages to write so many, and this is difficult for people to do. So many of his songs have more information in them than a scene would. And a lot of songwriters just are capable of kind of like taking one dramatic thing and expounding on that. But Lynn really can get so much meat in the songs, even more so than, than in the scenes. And that's really astounding. Okay, so what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about In the Heights? Okay, so this is very specific, but when, um, and it's going to reveal my age, uh, when In the Heights was transferring from off-Broadway to Broadway, uh, Lynn is famously a procrastinator. And he was supposed to be making a bunch of changes to the show to get it ready for Broadway. And instead of doing that, what he did was make a video in which he parodies the number from High School Musical 2 that Zac Efron performs called Bet On It. 
and he wrote a parody of it about how he was supposed to be writing his show and he wasn't. Um, he is dancing all over Central Park. Jonathan Groff and Karen Olivo make an appearance. Um, it is so charming and so silly and so Lynn. And it is still available online. Um, and I really, really recommend that everybody who's watching this, if you're still listening, go find it because um, it just is so fun and makes you realize that like now Lynn obviously has become this like massive celebrity because of Hamilton but like at his heart he's just a kind of procrastinating nerdy dude who used to do stuff like this and I'm sure still would if he didn't have this kind of if he didn't have 14,000 projects on his plate um but you really get a glimpse into his nerd soul there and I love it so much so I think it's called In the Heights to bet, uh, bet on it music I don't know just you'll find In the, In the Heights and bet on it and you'll find it First off, I had no idea this was a thing. Oh, yeah. A lot of people don't know about it. I cannot wait to go watch it. Um, and it will be appearing on our social media channels. So follow, yeah. in, the spotlight. follow in the spotlight wherever. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's also worth watching uh, the actual thing that it's based on first because Lynn has clearly watched it a billion times and like is redoing the choreography of it. So it's like very specifically a parody of that specific number from high school musical two i was gonna say i mean high school musical two what a what a time capsule that thing is so my favorite miscellaneous thing about the show and i kind of alluded to this earlier but in researching the show i discovered that when lynn wrote Pesente Fe, he came into the team with like an incredibly incredibly long version of the song that ultimately was cut down but a few days later they hadn't actually like figured that out and he and Alex Lackmore basically just improved what the song was going to sound like in the recording studio for the demo and like it's it basically exactly that to this day and I think it is such a testament to one both their collective their both their individual genius but then their collective genius together I mean it's to basically have improved what that incredible song is and sounds like on the fly and to basically make tweaks to it and but it be largely that as almost an improv is just incredible to me and I, I think speaks volumes about the talent that both of those men bring to the table and the lightning in a bottle that is captured in their collaborations. So that'll bring us to our next to last segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon. So uh, I think obviously the the debut of Lynn Manuel Miranda, as we have discussed before, the Broadway debut of Lynn is is obviously a huge contribution that this show brings, but it also ushers in a real, a new generation of Broadway talent. I mean, I think we can expand it beyond that in terms of Tommy Kale, Alex Lacamoire, Andy Blankenbuehler, uh, the list, Paul Taswell. I mean, the, the list goes on in terms of the, the new talent, Karen Olivo, uh, people who are like really Chris Jackson. I mean, like it, the list goes on and on and on and on and on of, of the exciting talent that it brings to Broadway. Um, and, 
a new generation that it brings to or style that it brings to musical theater i think musical theater warmly embracing hip-hop rap and contemporary music styles uh in that way it is very much it is very much an influential musical and important uh as a, a landmark uh or a touchstone of of musical theater but annika what would you say is its uh corner in the musical theater canon i mean i think it also is an unbelievably valuable and vital thing in that it's about a latinx population um it's about a group of people that really weren't represented on the Broadway stage at all before this. I mean, you know, you have Evita, which is set in South America. There's there's shows here and there that, that are dealing with Hispanic people. Um, but the idea of sort of this, this minority group in America um, being the entirety of what's on stage, um, not side characters, you know, not stereotypes, written by someone who is of that culture, I think is a huge step forward in terms of representation and uh, what musical theater can be and how much it can represent everyone. Like everyone's story can be up there ideally. And I think that was a big step forward. So I think that that has to be said too. And also the fact that it does have so much DNA from older shows. It's like, it, it wasn't a Latinx show that was separate from musical theater in all ways it was a latinx show that was very much a musical in the vein of all the musicals in the musical theater canon with some new stuff obviously in the way it uses hip-hop and things like that but like it was both very much of musical tradition and something new and i think that's crazy valuable well that wraps it up for our deep dive into in the heights um but before we go annika has to give us a clue about what comes next what comes next? So, Annika, what is our clue for the next musical we'll be putting in the spotlight? Well, I am very excited to say that the show that we are focusing on next is, and here is your clue, which will be obvious if you listen to this podcast and heard us talk about some of the things we want to do. Or follow either of us on social media accounts, particularly Mischievous. Yes, if you know me at all, this will be very easy. But here is the clue. For our next episode, we will be doing My Favorite Show. And no, it is not My Favorite Year. <laughs> That's a deep cut. <laughs> That's a deep cut and some kind of slander a little bit. That was I mean, my favorite show. Um, Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so we'll leave you with that clue. And we will see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit goodspeed.org. See you next time.